Ay, 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 ay. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Hello, and welcome to Yoga for the Revolution, a show about self-care in the age of resistance. Someone recently asked me on social if I could talk about dating, relationships, tips on making choices and decisions when it comes to relationships, and whether it's important to be with someone who shares your spiritual path. First of all, you guys out there are dating? I had no idea. With all the protesting and pigeon pose, who knew there was time for such things? Also, I just assumed everyone who listened to this show was over 55. Not that you can't be dating at over 55. I just didn't know. These are good things to know about my target demographic. Okay, so I'm not an expert on this stuff. Uh, Obvious to anyone who knows me, I'm 41. I just got married last year. I'm very, very lucky that I was able to marry my best friend forever, but I was not married before that. And I don't know if that makes me more or less qualified to answer questions like these. I guess I spent 20 years dating. That said, I'm a regular lady. I do and think about yoga things. So why not? Here's one perspective. Caveat. Also, I'm straight. I always have been. So my experience will come from that place. I don't know what it's like to be anything else. Suffice it to say, I am human and I have a human brain. So I think everything I'll say here will likely apply to other humans with human brains and hearts and minds. But the nuances that come of dating people in other genders or in other situations, those nuances I don't necessarily have a perspective on. So I will say I've never dated a yoga person. I guess I won't do that now ever either, which is kind of the whole point of the ceremony and all the things. But I never dated a yoga person or anyone even who meditated or practiced conscious communication as taught to me at Kripalu. I haven't had that experience, so I can't necessarily say what that's like. I don't know if it's quote unquote better or easier, though I suspect not really. I've always been pretty independent. I don't mind having separate interests and my own thing going on. I actually need that in a lot of ways. And it was never really a big deal for me to have my yoga life kind of separate from my dating life, separate from the rest of my life. Which, by the way, is exhausting. I mean, it's great to have hobbies and friends and everything, but it gets tough when you're literally living separate lives with different groups of people. But maybe that's a different topic. The older I get, the more I integrate, and it makes things much, much easier. And that, the not integrating part, was about me using my introversion as an escape from growth. So the integration was tough because it required me to work to look at myself. But by being alone, I didn't have to define myself by the outside world. I didn't have to see my own stuff reflected in anybody else because I just kept my own stuff to myself. Does that make sense? What I'm saying is I was alone a lot, even in relationships. And I liked it like that. But keeping myself out of true connection and relationship allowed me to ignore a bunch of stuff about myself. And 
that's not great if you're looking into spiritual or personal growth. Growth requires relationship. It just it just does. And I think by going solo, I was limiting my growth potential. Now that's not to say that someone's not complete or whole without a partner. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that growth happens in relationship with other people, whether those people are friends or family or other close connections or romantic relationships. You need to have other people in order to grow. If you have someone living with you, you're going to see your own stuff up close. What is that? There's that property in physics, the, the observer effect. Simply observing an object changes its properties. So living with someone, being observed by them, in turn makes one more aware of what is being observed. It's all a mirror. And we tend to see ourselves better that way. I didn't necessarily know what all my habits were until I saw someone watching me have those habits, if that makes any sense. I'm going to link to that physics thing in the show notes. I went down a little quantum mechanics rabbit hole there, and, you know, that stuff's bananas. Apparently, uh, in 98, there was something called the Wiseman experiment, where the observer wasn't even a person. It was electronic. And even that changed the outcome. So no human error possible there. There's more about quantum mechanics that I won't go into here, but, you know, waves can be particles and the other way around, you know, if you just look at them funny. So, rabbit hole. So that's one thing. The other thing is this integration piece I was mentioning. If you're living a yogic life, that's going to apply everywhere. It's not like you can shake it off. I mean, you can, but the hangover is horrible. You kind of have to integrate it if you're taking these lessons and bringing them off the mat and into your life. That's not to say I didn't go away for three months doing yoga two, three times a day, working in the kitchen at the dish machine at Kripalu, and then immediately come home and go out and get drunk because I did that. But that's not sustainable. All of my personal growth in my yoga experiences comes with me into my other experiences and my other relationships. So things that were appealing or addictive over time no longer felt appealing to me anymore because I had all of these other things I had learned that felt more important to me. And as I cultivate a relationship with myself and my intuition, that's going to have a deep, deep implication on the kind of relationships I have. So this seems like a nice moment to bring up Ethan Nickturn's work He's a senior teacher at the Shambhala Buddhist Center in New York City, and he recently wrote a book called The Dharma of the Princess Bride, which I've mentioned here before, but the, the part two of that title is what the coolest fairy tale of our time can teach us about Buddhism and relationships. So I bring it up again here because it's, it's a good entry point from pop culture to Buddhist thought, and one of the main tenets of this book is that spirituality is tested and strengthened in relationships, whether that's friendship, family relationships, or romantic relationships. These are the places where the theories and traditions come to life, where something on the page or something that feels ethereal or without context really becomes action, becomes contextual and cultural and very, very real. Of course, I lent out my copy, so I can't quote it for you here, but if you're interested in the book, I do highly recommend it. I'll link to it again. But one of the things I took away 
which is certainly no small point, is that having a true relationship with others requires you to have a relationship to yourself as well. So awakening comes within, but also with, with others. And I'll tell you this, there were years in my life, years, where I had, you know, practically my shit together, except in relationships. Meaning work was cool, social life was cool, family was cool, relationships were complete, It was the area where I rebelled the most. And at the same time, the area where I conformed the most. After a while, 20 years or so, I figured out that I wasn't great at knowing what I actually wanted or needed. You know, which, shit, you can't. I mean, you can't, nothing, nothing good can come of that. And I was confused enough that I stayed in relationships that were not awesome for me probably, or the other person. I couldn't tell the difference anymore between what I wanted, what I truly wanted, and what I knew other people wanted or what I thought other people wanted. If you're a people pleaser, this will sound familiar to you. If they are happy, then I am happy. Until, you know, you're really, really not. And I didn't deal with that well either because I wasn't in tune with what I wanted or needed. I wasn't able to communicate that out. So even when I figured out what I needed, I couldn't talk about it with any maturity or clarity, which, you know, totally sucks for the other person. My work with yoga, meditation, and yoga philosophy came into play eventually, uh, also with the help of a behavioral psychologist. But the thing that has brought me the most happiness in all of my life has been the ability, the skill really, to decipher to know what I want and what I don't want. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous because how do you not know what you want? I don't know, but it happens. And I don't think I'm the only person on the face of the earth who's experienced this. One of the first things I did in therapy was homework. My therapist gave me homework, which was to write down when I was happy. Just if I felt a spark of joy, if I felt something good, if a little smile came over my face, just make a note of it and then notice what I was doing at the time. And same thing when I'm feeling unhappy or if I'm feeling anxiety, just note it, maybe write it down. I mean, that's super basic, super simple, and it seems elementary and was actually a little embarrassing at the time, but it was also revolutionary. Now, I can do that all the time. I go for a walk and I'm like, ooh, I love walking. Note to self, go for walks, right? Or I love turning off the TV and turning off the music and just puttering around the house. Note to self, allow time for silent puttering or living room dance parties or whatever it is. That simple, simple process took away a lot of the shoulds. I didn't have to make a pro and con list to should I have a living room dance party right now? Because I had the experience of knowing that I like a living room dance party, right? So all the shoulds go. I should go to the gym. I should go for a walk. I should break up with this guy. I should stay with this guy. There are no shoulds. Just the act of acknowledging my feelings in any given moment was like a practice. It was like lifting weights. It was like meditation. It was a really conscious effort to get to know myself. And then to boot, you know, I have a library full of things that I know make me feel good and things that don't. And those things are there for me whenever I need them. But what's more is it connected me with my own intuition. So here's where yoga and meditation come in. If I spend 
five or 10 minutes sitting silently with myself and just open the door to listen, to listen to my feelings, to what my intuition has to say, that's a really deep practice for me. The more I consciously commit to taking time to listen to what my heart, body, soul needs, the easier it is to hear that voice. And look, I'm not talking about needs like you need to eat food and you need to have shelter. This is Maslow's hierarchy all over again. This is the fulfillment and self-actualization part, not the first layer of survival needs. You actually do have to feel safe and secure first. And some relationships are not that, which makes it incredibly challenging to decipher how to move forward. But what I'm more talking about here is, you know, you're a single person on a second date. What does your intuition tell you? Or you're in a relationship that's at a decision point. What does your intuition tell you? What do you need to happen now? And it's good to be able to hear that voice. Because in those cases, we usually already know the voice is there. But if we haven't practiced listening to it, it might be clouded by a lot of shoulds. It might be clouded by other people's ideas of what you should do. We've talked about this a little bit here before. Think of a physical symptom as an example. Maybe you notice your back is bothering you a little, but you mostly ignore it. You figure maybe you should stretch, but then you forget or whatever it is. After a while, what was once a twinge becomes you know, kind of a red hot poker of pain. That voice gets louder. Same thing happens in the mind. That voice that is quiet and covered over by doubts or by insecurity or by other people's opinions, it will eventually get louder and louder. But if you don't know how to recognize it, the message can kind of get lost. So in the past, I've had forms of anxiety attacks. And again, I am but one person. I'm not a mental health professional. So this is all just my experience. And I encourage anyone seeking support in that arena to find it. But for me, those anxiety attacks became a signal and a loud one, a signal for me to, you know, once I recovered and felt more calm to look inside and see what that anxiety was about. So I'll bring this to a relationship place. I was dating someone at one point who moved from the East Coast, where we lived, to the West Coast for a job. And we didn't break up. He just took a job in another city and we kind of slogged through the long distance thing for a little while. And I remember being out. I was with my brother and my niece and nephew and we were at a a holiday craft fair and this guy calls and it's loud at the craft fair because there's a DJ. I don't know why and I can't really hear him and we had been playing phone tag and I wanted to talk to him but I couldn't because it was too loud and all of a sudden I can't breathe. I'm, you know, 112 degrees warmer than normal. I can't hear anything but buzzing in my ears. I got to get out of there. And I basically ran out of there and, you know, went home and sat quietly for quite a long time. Later, quite a bit later, in fact, I realized that that anxiety had less to do with the craft fair DJ, which, you know, is an odd choice, but, but more had to do with my intuition saying, hello, right? For me, this was like the same thing as having some tenderness in the low back that turns into that red hot poker. I had some knowledge about what I needed and wanted from this relationship that I was choosing to ignore. So the signals got louder and louder until they became a very cloudy and messy conglomerate of emotions that presented as this moment of panic. Eventually, I listened. Now, 
I'd also like to say I take all my lessons from meditation and from the yamas and niyamas and apply them unfailingly in my current life. But I am human, and so I am imperfect. But I am better at knowing what I need. And that's a huge, huge part of being in a successful relationship. More than being on the same spiritual path. More than sharing matcha lattes together. Knowing what I need and being able to communicate that in a safe and productive way ultimately led to my ability to actually be with someone who is a wonderful partner for me. Being able to recognize emotions as they arise is a key to being available in a relationship. Being able to ride the wave of emotion to not panic or to not stuff it and ignore it or to not lash out. To me, those skills are game changers. And I don't think I ever would have been able to have a a real committed, honest relationship without those skills. I mean, it doesn't always work that way. It's not to say we don't have moments where someone's rolling their eyes at the other person. But what I will say is that for me, even that moment, moments in our relationship where I may express myself in ways that aren't completely consciously communicated right? Because I'm a human and I, I, whatever, I'll make a comment or I'll, I'll be snide or I'll do something that's not maybe the most loving thing to do. But even that is a step beyond what I used to have the skills to do. Before I was never able to express what I actually felt or needed. Everything went inside and just was like locked up in a little box until it exploded. So now I'm so comfortable and safe with this person, and I feel safe and secure in what I know I need I want, that I do express these things. But again, there's some humanness at work. So if I circle back a little bit, is it important to find a partner who's on the same page as you in terms of your spiritual path or any spiritual path? I don't know. Only you know that. For me, what's more important are some key shared values. And whether those values are cloaked in spiritual language or yoga language, or if they're expressed in a different way, that's less important to me than the fact that there are values that we do share. My husband, even though he doesn't know what the yamas and the niyamas are, he believes in them inherently. Inside his good, true heart, he believes in the same principles of right living as I do. They may not show up in the exact same ways, but that's okay with me. I find that interesting. And to me, that's way more important than if he practices the same things I practice. Now, that might not be true for you. You may want to walk down this path with someone who gets exactly where you are in a, in a different way than what I need. And that's okay too, obviously. But only you can know that. I will say it's important to recognize too, though, that no one else is going to save you. If you are on a path, having a partner on that path is not inherently going to make you more perfect. Nick Turn talks about this in the book, The Princess Bride Book, by saying, there is no buttercup. No matter who we partner up with, we are always who we are. Whatever you're doing, how you're growing, what you're learning, you're going to have to do it. If you hook up with a guru partner, that's not going to do that work for you. And I don't think anyone actually thinks this consciously. But, you know, when I was younger, my friends, and I guess I did this too, we all dated musicians. But it didn't make any one of us a rock star. Dating someone whose spirituality you admire is great and be aware at the same time that it won't make you a musician or a rock star or any of those things. So 
My husband doesn't come to yoga classes, but he knows my teaching schedule. He knows and respects that I go to bed earlier on days when I'm teaching early in the morning. When I'm being salty, he may gently remind me that I might feel better if I went to a class. That works for me. Would it be easier if he ate like me, talked like me, went to Kripalu, if we went to Kirtan together and had matching yoga mats? I don't know. I don't think so. Because there are things we do like to do together. We both like to go for a walk after dinner. And when the moon is out, we both look at the moon. And I love that. You want to know what I think really is that at the end of the day, it matters more what path you're on than what path your partner or your potential partner is on. Uh, You know, practically, of course, it helps to have friends or communities that support you. Overall, if you want to cultivate a daily meditation practice, it helps to have a community in some capacity that is also doing that so that they can support you. To me, I don't know that it matters who that community is or where that support is coming from, right? It takes a village. There are a lot of things I ask for in my romantic relationship. And there are things that I ask my friends to support me with. And there are things that I ask my family to support me with. I don't ask for necessarily everything from one person. Another point that Nick Turn makes, how you experience yourself is based on your relationship to other people. So this goes back a little bit to the observation effect, right? That being observed could potentially change the outcome because we really are ultimately alone, but we exist in context. We exist in relationship to others. So it's important to surround yourself with helpful relationships, but exactly what that looks like is going to be different for different people. Right? I mean, obviously, I don't think anyone should date a jerk, and a lot of people do for a variety of reasons. And a lot of people are stuck, either emotionally or financially or otherwise. And I'm not saying a positive mental attitude will get you out of a serious or abusive relationship that requires more. What I am saying is that being able to identify what works for you and what doesn't is key to any relationship working. If you cultivate a relationship to yourself with yourself, then everything else will come. It might not be easy. It might suck to have to listen to the voice that says, hey, this isn't working, or hey, you're not getting what you need. But it's worth listening because that same voice will speak up at some point and say, hey, it's time to throw your plan out the window because this person needs something from you or this is someone you're going to want to be with. Or maybe your voice will say different things. I don't know because I don't know your inner voice. But I, I do want to emphasize that that's going to be your guide. No podcast is going to be able to tell you, you know, no Instagram long post is going to be able to tell you, you have to decipher that for yourself. So I don't know, does that, does that answer the question about dating and quantum mechanics? I hope it helps. So until next time, keep breathing and live to fight another day. Future's not ours to see. K said, I said, I. What will be, will be. What will be, will be. What will be. Will be.